Good morning. It's good to see you. We're going to be in <clears throat> two places in the Bible today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 22, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel 23. And all, although they are far apart from each other, they, they are approximately happening at the same time. That's the way this passage works. That's the way a lot of Hebrew writing will work. So 1 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23. Um, again, they're going to be kind of talking about some of the same time period, the very same distinct season. And while you're turning there, and if you don't have a Bible, we will have it up on the screen. It's not lost on me how much Hollywood is working to capture the time period of the 80s and the 90s in a lot of the new movies and shows. Maybe it's not been lost on you. I'm a little bit fascinated by how they play on sentimentality to capture a demographic, a new audience. Um, Stranger Things was probably one of the first to come out in recent times, pulling some soundtracks out of the crypt, you know, and, and everyone being excited. This is my new favorite song. I heard it on Stranger Things, although they've never heard it before. Now they love it. Cobra Kai did it on TV, right? Some of you, that got you in the feels because you loved Karate Kid. That was your that was your movie back in the day. Top Gun Maverick did some of the same thing. I've even watched how... <clears throat> There have been previews for movies, like Marvel movies. And I know if you see the preview of a Marvel movie, what's happening to you is probably the same thing that's been happening with me, which I'm a little less excited now, and it's a little bit more of uh, number 38. We'll see what this one's like. But, but watch how they put a remix of an old song from the 80s in the background. And then it, it just captures you because you love that Elton John song. And so that sentimentality kind of pulls you in and it makes the preview so much more interesting. Now, film critics will debate on why that is such a draw for people, why we love the, the, the 80s feel, the 90s feel when it comes to what we see on the screen. And out of all the reasons I saw them talking about, one reason stood out, and it's that they hearken back to simpler times easier times. It pulls memories out of our hard drive where we remember things just being a little bit better than what they are today for, for just a brief moment. It's like we could time travel, right? And the harder your season is of life right now, the, the more sentimentality kind of pulls and tugs on the old heart. We longingly want peace. And sometimes those memories evoke that feeling, that sense of peace in us. You know, we're a few weeks into this walk through the narrative of David which is the longest single narrative of any one person in the Bible. And I, I hope it's become obvious to you by this point how much the story of David anticipates Jesus, how much it sets the table for a much more beautiful and rich gospel story, something much more robust. And, and I hope if it's done anything else, I hope it's helped you see how relatable and complex this guy is. If you haven't seen it yet, you're going to see it. I mean, David's complicated and yet relatable at the same time. He is a poet and a murderer. He's a king. He's a warrior. He's an adulterer. He sings. He has some of the, the most beautiful prayers ever written, and then he'll lie with the same mouth. He's complicated, and that's why we relate to him, because he is so not unordinary, but ordinary in some very real ways. And so today's passage is going to be a very helpful one for us, because we kind of see David sitting in a pressure cooker. And we get to see how his heart responds longingly, how sentimentality starts to creep in on him, and we get to see how community comes alongside to be helpful. 
And I think this is going to be a good passage for us. It's a very odd moment in the Bible. I love this moment in the Bible. And I think it's probably more applicable now than it might have been in recent history. There's great application for this in our lives today. So let's just jump in. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, and we're going to do verse 1 and 2. And that's going to set it up. This is what the word of the Lord is for us in 1 Samuel. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. That's a lot of people, right? I want you to click over, if you can, to 2 Samuel 23. Again, if you can't get there, it's going to be on the screen. And I'm going to go into verse 13. And it says, And three of the thirty men, thirty chief men, went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then three mighty men broke through the camp. That word broke, by the way, means ripped or torn. These three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Quick recap to how we got here, if I can do it in one sentence. The recap is this. David has finally fled a vicious, vengeful Saul. A Saul that was bent on killing him, and he left. He ended up in a place called Nob, and then he went from a place called Nob to a place called Gath. And Gath is full of his enemies. And he tries, in not one of his best moments, an act of political asylum. And it does not work. And so he has to flee again, constantly fleeing from place to place. And when he flees, he starts heading back home but doesn't get all the way there. There's nowhere to go because home's not safe. Ends up in this cave called Adullam. These caves were large, carved mostly out of limestone, and they could fit 400 to 600 people. That's what we can see today. It's a unique place. And actually, when you look at the Bible, when you step away from it and peek in, Psalm 142 was written while he was in this cave. So we could actually pull this passage into what we're discussing today to just kind of look at the state of his heart. And this is what it says, Psalm 142, I'm just going to do three verses, four and seven, it'll be on the screen. He says, look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me, no refuge remains to me, no one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. Adullam, this cave, was within a mere few miles of where Saul was. Far less than ten, some say less than five. And he was about one mile away from where he had killed Goliath. And that is the distinct area that he was a shepherd. When it was just 
the easier days, the simpler days, him and some sheep and a flute or whatever else he played and a sling, he just kind of walked away. Those are easy days for him. And that's what he's looking out upon. He would have been able to look out upon familiar ground full of memories, both haunting ones and sentimental ones, right? That's how it is when we drive around a city, isn't it? I mean, how simple life was for this guy. But not anymore. Oh, no. Now it's complicated. Now he's fleeing. And to make a very complicated situation even more complicated, now he's building a community around him. You caught that, right? Of course, it's not the community he would chose. <laughs> it's not the people he would have drafted. It says this in verse 2 of this first passage we read. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were about 400 men, which means there was a lot more than 400 people. It's a lot. It's a lot of burden for a guy who's fleeing, a guy who has no real address. It's, it's a pretty big deal. I don't know how, if you know how the football, how, how NFL works. There's just under 1,700 active NFL football players, and how they populate the roster is one of two real ways, and one is the draft, seven rounds of a draft. But if you don't get drafted, if you don't get plucked out of the, the cream of the crop, you could still get in. It's just you would be what they call an undrafted free agent, where they invite you to a mini camp or something like that. But if you can't be drafted or pulled in that way, which would make you outside the top 2%, then maybe, maybe if you would have made it to a, a pro day or maybe you were invited to the combine. But, but then there were people that couldn't even get that far. These were people that even at the college level, which is some of the best in the, in the country, were told you're not pro material. You don't have the speed. You don't have the grades. You don't have the smarts. You don't have the size. You're not good enough to make it to the next level. And you could actually go back even further than that and say that there were people that didn't even finish college ball. They tried it for a semester or two, and then they decided, this isn't for me. What am I doing? This is a bunch of animals out here. I'm not fast enough, strong enough, smart enough. I don't really want it that much. I'm out, right? And then you've got people that didn't even make it that far. People that tried really hard in high school, and they just really loved it, but they're just a little too small, not fast enough. Maybe they didn't have the head for it. Maybe they didn't have the grades for it, right? Then you have people that didn't even care to even try out. That's who we're talking about right now. That's the people in the cave, right? Undrafted. These are undrafted men. Listen, the American church can learn a bunch from these partner passages that we're pulling together today. And when we read them in light of each other, these undrafted, cave-dwelling people, we will see that they become national heroes at a mythological level. I mean, they're legends, what they turn into. Joshua Bashabeth is one of them. You like how I nailed that my first try, how I stuck the landing on that, Joshua Bashabeth? A little bit of practice there. But this is a guy, it's worth it because he killed 800 men with a spear at one time. Let that sink in. 800 with a spear, right? Eleazar, he struck the Philistines down so much that they couldn't peel his fingers off of the sword. I mean, our, our thumbs get tired from scrolling. His, he could not even let go of the sword. He had fought so long. And then you've got Beniah, who's probably one of the more popular guys, one of the popular heroes. He went into a pit on a snowy day to fight a lion, something no one had any business doing. We won't even go to a church service if there's snow on the ground. This guy goes into a pit where there's a lion and says, I'm going to take it out. That's who we have, but this isn't where they started. This isn't where these gigantic legends began. They were undrafted. 
socially discarded families, inconsequential men, they were distressed. And when the Bible says distressed here, the Hebrew word for that, when you peel away the sheen and the limitations of our English language, it was a starvation-level distress, right? Not like I can't find my password, I'm stressed out, but like I haven't eaten in six, seven days, stressed. The debt, they were indebted, but it's not because they couldn't use their credit cards with responsibility. This was a usury or a government-sponsored oppression type of indebtedness. And then my favorite is the word discontent. Some, some translations will say they were bitter of breath. Just the idea of taking a breath found a deep bitterness in them. These folks were invisible, unimpressive, inconsequential. They would walk into a room. They didn't really change the temperature of the room. All they brought was a lot of baggage, a rap sheet, I'm sure. And they attached themselves to an underwhelming king who himself is a bit invisible in a very unimpressive situation. And they're building a regime of weakness and humility, not strength or promise. By the way, let this be an encouragement to some of us who feel like we're not ever going to make anything out of our lives. This is a strong place to just tuck away in your heart. If If you're afraid that you'll never be a person of consequence, you'll never lead well, you'll never have effect in this world. Let this be a good showcase passage of how long discipleship with imperfect people over a lot of years will build something beautiful. But also, I mean, before I even move on, can you just squint your eyes a little bit looking down the road and see the promise of another socially invisible king drawing to himself the castaways of culture in Christ? The the, the one who has a big heart for the undrafted. Jesus would build a regime of weakness with the poor in spirit, the distressed, the indebted, those who are bitter to take the next breath. We're starting to see what the Lord is doing with a passage like this. But if we just take what we've read so far, what we can see the Bible teaching us is there's two beautiful commentaries on community. One, I'd like to look at the identity of God's community and how God builds And one may be the activity of God's community and how we interact with each other. The identity is interesting because what I see very quickly is the community God gives to you and me is more beautiful than the one that we would choose if we were to draft our own. It's more beautiful than what we would choose. We think if I was king for a day and I got to choose what my community would look like, it would look a certain way. We could imagine it. And it usually in our minds, it looks like just like us. Or 20% better than us, right? Same everything, but maybe a little bit further down the road. That's what's most attractive to us. So often when it comes to community, we're not really looking for the gospel to be the singular point of connection. We're looking for our preferences to do that, our biases to shape that. We would not draft people that we do not approve of. We would not draft people that we are trying to avoid. Listen, the church can swipe left just as good as the world can. We could do it just as good when it comes to assessing who we can and should and ought to connect with. And just just as a quick self-diagnostic, look at your primary community, what my my daughters would call your friend group. Do they look just like you? Same tax bracket? Same professional shelf that you sit on? Same education, life phase, political persuasion? Same age, same, same, same? That's not really community as much as it is affinity right? Something different. 
when we all look, like my daughter says, when we all look like different fonts of each other, <laughs> it could give the appearance of community without the substance of the real thing. Self-selected community is not always what God selects. This cave, exhibit A. This cave is good proof of this. All they had in common was nothing. That's what they had. This is what they had in common. The misery, the problem, their issue, and the remedy, which was David in this moment. David was all they had in common. This is how God builds so often. It will actually be our differences with each other that cause this this friction, this gospel abrasion with each other, the this, this chafing of living that tight life on life with each other that will actually build something up in us. Listen, I've got preferences. I'm just like you. My Spotify playlist does not look like yours. I was bumping to rap as loud as I could crank it all the way here this morning. Some of you hate rap, right? But I don't like banjos as much. I'm sorry, right? We all have preferences, The videos that I subscribe to on YouTube, not the same ones that you do, I promise you that, right? We're different. I've got a different personality. There's a certain way I like my Super Bowl snacks. I have an Enneagram just like you. I have hobbies. I've got preferences, right? But we lay down our preferences to serve other people, to connect. We don't lift our preferences above people, right? But again, I'm just like you. Some people's personalities, they chafe against me. They're difficult for me. But those points of friction, that's where I grow. That's where I grow. And when I say grow, I don't mean I grow because I'm like, well, I have to tolerate it. They are, they are different from me. I have to just smile and act like I like them until I guess I figure out later on that maybe I do like them. So that's not how you grow. You grow because you come to the place of humility and you say, you know what? I'm not better than them. I'm not better than them. They probably have a lot to teach me. I have a lot to receive. We're, we're, we're not all that different when it all comes down to it. It's an exercise in humility. That's how we grow. See, the gospel is a story where one who is very different from you and me came to be close to us, laid his life bare vulnerably for a complicated people, and yet I still find my temptation is to pull the ripcord and parachute out of community whenever it gets too hard. Maybe you're like me in that. And if I do, it... First of all, it's a loss of a growth opportunity, but it's also a denial of the gospel's ability to tie people together. It's gospel denial. Because what we're saying is I need you to meet my preferences to be the strength of what connects us. Instead of God has done something beautiful to connect us. Right? I love, and I said this last week, I love how the Bible does not hide the grit of humanity from us. I love this. A key example is not just in this cave, but the mismatch of the personalities and preferences that we see with the disciples around Jesus, right? I mean, listen, you've got fishermen and tax collectors, blue collar, white collar. You think those guys voted the same? Read again. They did not. You had vaxxers and anti-vaxxers in that group. You had maskers and non-maskers in that group. They had hobbies that were not aligned. They had ideas that were not aligned. And you could see them bump into each other from time to time. But whenever you read them, do you not kind of say, I think I would struggle with that disciple? Do you ever put yourself in that context? I think I would have gotten along with Andrew. I think Paul I would have needed in small doses, (laughs) right? He's a a little bit much. Barnabas, I probably could have hung out with that guy all day every day. Peter annoys me. Peter would have been a guy where I thought, that's it, that's it. He said it too many times, now I'm going to say something back. I mean, I could see that personality being a struggle. Isn't it interesting how God brings them all together? They grew from each other, and they were drawn to a better David. 
they had something in common. It had nothing to do with their biases or their preferences. And on top of this, they would build a church that would hold prostitutes and women that would run businesses. Little girls that had demons and soldiers. It would be such a diverse church where all they would ever have in common is the gospel. That's it. What else is there? The identity of the church. The community that God gives to us is far more beautiful than the one that we would choose for ourselves. But we also see a big, big picture of the activity of the church here, right? I want to remind you how exhausted David was. He's, he's not just tired, he's tired of being tired. And this is how I know this, because in the psalm it says this, no refuge remains, he's whining a little bit, but I get it, no refuge remains, no one cares for my soul, bring me out of this prison, all my enemies are too strong for me. That's what he's saying right here. And we don't just have evidence that he is struggling. We have evidence that he's nostalgic here, sentimental with where he used to be. David was near the fields of Bethlehem where he used to roam as a boy in simpler times. And on hot days, when he was tired, there would be a well. And he would go and pull from that well and be refreshed. He says this, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. It's not that that water tasted better. The memories taste better. He's in a pressure cooker. This long sigh of the soul, he's letting out for easier days. Easier days with far less pressure. You know, incidentally, this well would have been the most, one of the most guarded spots in the whole fruited plains there. I did a long study and took a class on the Peloponnesian Wars many years ago. I don't remember most of it, but this is what I do remember. If you had a chance of standing it as a city in those, in those times with the, with the Greeks and the Athenians, you needed to have good, strong walls, and you needed to have a secure water source. If you have lousy walls and a lousy gate, the Spartans are going to punch right through. That's for sure, right? But it doesn't matter if you have strong gates and a strong wall. If your water source is outside, you might not be killed by the spear, but they're going to poison you and fast. You have to have guards and protection around the gates and the wells. This is a well by the gates. It would have been doubly guarded. There would have been tons of guards, and that's the point. That's the whole point of the whole passage. It says this, Then three mighty men broke, ripped, tore through the camp of the Philistines, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. High price to pay for some water, but his friends knew that this was more than just water. David's sigh of longing became their command. And they ripped out of there and they got it for him. His heart's longing became the heartbeat of good companions. They saw how vulnerable he was because he made himself vulnerable. And then they sacrificially served him. This is what good friends do. This is how community operates. This is the activity of community. Because we all have sighs, don't we? Of longing. We all have those things. I got to confess, my wife is far better than I am at this. I miss the subtle cues. I am in the negatives when it comes to kind of reading a room and just knowing how people are doing. I have a lot in my head. I move really fast and I'm just grossly naive so often. My wife, not at all. She's really good at this. And it's not because she's a girl and I'm a guy. It's because she's present. She is like fully invested in the moment right then. She's not thinking about the next one. I usually am. She's not. She's sensitive, thoughtful, especially with her questions. She has a communal awareness to her. I've got a lot of growing 
to do in maybe picking up the size and the longings of others. Maybe you're the same way. I mean, quick question, what are the dreams and the pains of your friend right now? I mean, you can, can you state their story of brokenness as well as they can? We all have a sigh. Uh, oh, man, times used to be so much different, easier. We all have one. Do you know what it is for your friend? Because here's the truth. David's not dying of thirst. He's dying of discouragement. <laughs> He's hearing the siren song of nostalgia in easier times and just an easier existence. And it's so tempting to answer the call. They come back with the water and it says this. He would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. This is not an act of waste. This is an act of worship. He saw drinking this water is trampling on a very beautiful, holy moment. This was not just a moment. It was a heavy, spiritually weighty moment. And he picked up on that quick. David was served by a sacrificial community, but it's because he laid his life bare. It's because he made himself open. Here's where we can find some good application. I'm gonna to try to be as tangible as I can and maybe even get more tangible. When we share our broken stories with other people, what's crushing us, what's making us afraid, what's making us angry, it's only then that we could be intimately known. It's only then when we share that level of our life. That's why one of our core values as a church is not just community, but it's communal authenticity. You can go to the website and read it. We put it up there years ago. It's not just community. It's communal authenticity, vulnerability. A good friend of mine said that real vulnerability is not just taking your armor off in front of somebody else. It's taking your armor off and handing them the sword where they could defend you with it or run you through with it. It's letting them have that access to your life. We're just like any other church. Any church that has something like a missional community or a community group or a life group, we could build spaces for this type of friendship to happen, but we can't dictate or legislate. We can't force people to share their life authentically. We can't, right? We can't force people to be known deeply. We could just create moments and rhythms for it because for this to be possible, it's going to require courage in two directions. Great courage, too. One is the courage of sighing being vulnerable, letting your life be accessible to somebody else, putting it out on the table, that takes courage. And then it takes another set of courage, I guess you could say, to say, you know what, I'm here for you, and I'm going to fight. I'm going to rip through the lines, and I'm going to sacrificially serve you because I'm here for you, because I can hear it, and I can intuit what's going on in your life, because I'm that close, and I'm here for you. It's going to take someone saying, hey, here's my story of broken pieces and all my neuroses and my paranoia and my fears, the stuff, my addictions, the things that make me ugly in my heart, the things that I struggle with the most, the things that keep me up at night. Here it is. Do with it what you will. But then the other person has to be courageous as well by saying, I won't judge you for that. I get you. And I love you more because of it. And I'll fight for you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Earlier I made the statement that if your primary community looks just like you or 20% better than you, it's probably more affinity than real diverse community. But the truth is, is if your primary community doesn't even know you, well, then it's just a crowd. It's just a crowd at that point. But maybe we can get more practical with what this can offer us. If you feel unknown, disconnected, lonely, unmentored, 
And I think mentorship is a missing art. Generational transfer, I think, is evaporating. And I think generational transfer is, is really important for those as we age. I don't think there's one age where it's better than another. I just know that it's important for everybody. But if you feel like you are not connected to the level where there's an input, let me say this. You have to initiate that, friend. You have to initiate that. You have to step into that. You have to repeatedly and ferociously fight for these moments, and then you have to guard them, and the excuses are myriad. We're full of them. I'm full of them. You know, I was talking to my bride the other day, and she said this statement, but I, I realized just on discussing it with her that it's true for both of us. We realized real quickly we've never not had a mentor in our life. I'll just speak about mentoring for a moment because, I mean, it's, it's too broad to say connection. I'll focus on one that is a little bit of a missing art. When, it, when it's mentoring, we realize we've never not been mentored. We've always fought really hard for it. My wife had a really beautiful mentor for a lot of very key years, and women all around the church world would say, how did you get her to pour into your life? And she said, I had to fight like crazy for that time. That's a busy woman. She's a busy woman. I had to crawl into her schedule. I had to build those rhythms. I had to keep after it. And it was the same for me. Hey, what's open in your calendar? Is Tuesday not going to work? What about Wednesday? How can I sync up with you? What is easiest for you? Because I've got to get what you have in you. There are some things in your life that are ticking that I need in me. What will it take to get that? But again, the excuses are myriad. Well, I tried, Luke. My calendar's different than theirs. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure, I'm sure your calendar is different than theirs. I'm sure it's going to take some fighting some hard work, but that's what makes it valuable. That's what makes those moments pregnant with value is the fact that there was so much fight to get it. Another one I hear a lot is they don't understand me. I need someone that understand. They don't understand me. I'm unique. Friend, listen, you're not unique. There's, I know your mom told you that you, you're not. You're just like the person next to you, okay? <laughs> we all have the same issues. I've known professional athletes. I know a couple billionaires, billionaires with the B, and when you talk to them and you don't act weird around them and they share with you, their problems are just like your problems, just like them, because we're all, we're all really the same. I think it's prideful to think otherwise. I think it's prideful to think I'm special, I'm different, I'm distinct, I'm unique, and that person cannot pour anything into me. Let me just crank it up a little bit more, if I can make it more practical even than that, because it's not just us being mentored. It's also us pouring into others. Everyone is so hungry to be poured into. Rarely do we think about who is it that's walking around that says, I am who I am because that person poured into me. You ever think about those questions? I've never also not had a season where I'm not pouring into others. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm always going to invest in men. No ivory tower for me. That's not how I'm going out. My old pastor used to say, Luke, every disciple must have a mentor and be a mentor. I love that. I love, there's always somebody that is far behind you, and there's always somebody that is far in front of you. Get yourself in a position where you're being poured into and you're emptying yourself. Now, we always say something similar but not very identical at all, and that is to know and be deeply known. That's the target. That's the vision of what we're shooting at when it comes to communal authenticity. Be known and deeply know others. But here's what I know. This is what I know. The best authentic relationships are not the ones you draft. Mine have never been, ever. 
It's always been some mismatched, imperfect union. But it's one where they can hear my sigh, and I can spot theirs. And maybe they'll rip through some obstacles to serve me at a personal cost for, for my benefit. And when they do so, it's a beautiful act of worship before the Lord. Just as beautiful is David pouring out that water on the ground. This emblem of deep sacrifice for the benefit of another, which again is a gospel emblem. Friends, I hope I've been clear. No one here is too busy to fight for this. No one. No one is too busy to fight for this. The original campus ministries that me and my wife built over the years, we did always let them know, be ready to answer the question, who's investing in you and who are you investing in? Should always be able to answer that question. I don't think it's such a bad rule. Who are you investing in? Who is investing in you? What kind of courage is that calling from you? And what on earth are you waiting for? Better people? More time? Come on. I do understand that there's a real fear in this. And it's the fear of being burned and abandoned. Some of you have done this. You've poured your life into others. You've been poured into, and there was a fracture. And the wound is so deep, you say, uh-uh. I'm not going back there again. That hurt. That hurt too much. Let me just give you a piece of the freedom that we have to just dump truck our life and our energy and our emotional capacity into other people even after being burned. Another king would be handed a cup, and he'd drink deeply. He would not pour it out. Another king in Jesus, he was the only one that could bear the weight of his own cup. And then he went and broke through harsher enemy lines than these mighty men did to bring us not just a cup, but a stream of living water. And we get to drink of that every day. This is what it says in John. Stay where you're at. John 4, 13. Jesus said to her, who was her, another undrafted, marginally invisible, socially discarded person at a well. It's perfect for Jesus. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus does this with a sacrificial act. His sacrificial act was the ultimate friendship for me. A mess. A man of no consequence. Invisible. Powerless. For all of us, a motley community of just criminals. He understands our soul's longing better than your closest relationship. He gets it. He hears it. He feels it, even. And he answers our deepest thirst. And what this ultimate friendship does is it frees me from demanding you be my ultimate friendship. It frees me from that. I'm not chained anymore to you never, ever leaving me because I've got one who will never, ever leave me. I met a younger guy recently in the last few weeks who, like so many of us, has been betrayed and abandoned by deep friends, wounded deeply, and he wondered if he could ever be vulnerable again. I get it. I, I've been there. But I let him know the alternative is brutally worse. It's brutally worse. This is how C.S. Lewis says it in his work, The Four Loves. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it, 
carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. He's right. An unbreakable heart is also an unknown one. I get it. You've been hurt. I have too. That abandonment is real. It's painful. But it's not going to destroy you. Why? Because Christ can never leave you. Christ will never leave you. His friendship is deep. He's always there. And because of that, we're free to be abandoned by others. We're free. So we have some changing to do. A passage like this beckons us towards change. I think we have to stop swiping left on people because they look unimpressive to us. That's pride. That requires repentance. I also think we have to be courageous as we reveal ourselves and step into other people who have revealed themselves. If we don't do that, that's apathy. That requires repentance. Find someone to share your life with. If you need a mentor, hunt them down. Make it hard for them to say no. Work hard and then find someone to pour your life into. They're everywhere. You walk amongst a broken city. They're everywhere. And then we have to repent for just bubble wrapping ourselves and our schedule with luxuries and what he calls the coffin of selfishness. His words, not mine. There's a lot to repent for. And listen, I know not everybody here is used to this type of teaching. You may never read those passages before. Maybe you're trying to figure out who Christ is. Maybe this is all new to you. But Jesus' cup which we'll celebrate here in a moment with community, was a cup of judgment for not his sins, but your sins. That was a cup of judgment. His life was poured out on the ground. He ripped through enemy lines by having his own skin and bones ripped. That's the motion of the gospel. He is the better David, pulling a motley crew of unimpressive people to build a regime of the poor in spirit for his glory and for our good. And so what I would submit to you is to give your life to such a gentle king, to submit your life to such a good, noble friend. He's just such a good friend. And you've probably never had a really good, good, good friend. And if you have, maybe you've either lost that friend or there's the threat of always losing that friend. Not with Christ. Not with Christ. Christ.